You may have noticed that the Christmas decorations are still up. Um, we have a working theory in our house that the longer we leave the Christmas decorations up, the shorter winter will be or feel. Because when you winter really gets started when Christmas is over. And so if we just pretend like Christmas goes on and on into January, then when we take them down, winter will seem shorter. And so that's the going theory. And uh, I guess that's what we're doing here at church too. So you can, uh, you can be thankful for that. We're making winter shorter here at uh, WBC. So um, just wanted to give you a quick update uh, on Derek Ramsey. Uh, I mentioned him last week. We prayed for him specifically. Uh, the last I have heard on Friday, he's doing a bit, uh, quite a bit better. Um, Anne-Marie told me on Friday morning that uh, his Thursday night, all through the night, she checks on him every two to three hours, his oxygen levels and all that. And it was the first night all week that it had stayed in the 90s throughout the night. Um, so a pr a previous to that, it had been dropping into the 80s uh, every night. So he's really had a rough week. Um, so you can pray for him, pray for her as well. She is still... Um, COVID-free. Uh, she told me 16 days as of Friday, so uh, that's fantastic. Just keep praying for her as well, and uh, hopefully, you know, within a, a few days, he'll be back on his feet and, uh, and much improved, but man, he's really had a, a struggle with this thing. So, uh, so yeah, keep praying for him, and uh, I'm just thankful that uh, it seems like he has turned a corner uh, the last few days. So, Glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're going to finish up our series on the gospel. So you can open up to Romans 8, which is where we're going to finish. We will not get there for a little bit of time this morning, but, but that's where I think you should plant yourself uh, in the scriptures, and we'll get there eventually. Over the, over the years, Bethany and I have been involved in quite a bit of uh, premarital counseling, uh, discussions with couples who uh, I'm doing their wedding or playing some part in their wedding, and uh, we asked them to meet with us and, and go through a couple of books with us and talk about marriage. And one of the things that we always communicate to each couple, and that I think is absolutely necessary for going into marriage, is that you have to know what the ultimate purpose and the ultimate reason for marriage is. I mean, you have to see its chief end in order to properly live and function in the day-to-day -day life. You have to see the big picture. Um, and I don't think you can have a healthy, you can, you can make it through, but I don't think you can really have a healthy and, strive, and good marriage without understanding that. Um, Ephesians chapter five, you don't have to turn there, but it makes it quite clear that God's purpose in marriage, that God created this institution, this thing that we call marriage, he brought Adam and Eve together for a particular reason, and that was ultimately to put on display the love that Christ has for his people, for his church. I mean, at the end of Ephesians 5, Paul quotes Genesis 2 and says, I am saying this refers to Christ and the church, right? So the original marriage took place in order to put on display Christ's love for his church. And so... It's interesting because, and we talked about this when we were in Ephesians, but oftentimes we flip this around. And what we think happened is we think God or Paul looked at marriage and said, oh, that's a really neat illustration of Christ's love for his church. And so we sort of think marriage was this foundational idea, and then it's a really good illustration of Christ's love for his church. But the Bible would actually say that's upside down. 
what happened is, is that God wanted to put on display his love for his people, and so he created marriage in order to help us understand that and, and do it, right? And so God's love and God, his character, is the starting point. And his desire to put that character and that love on display is why he has created everything. So we can't get that backwards. The 18th century pastor Jonathan Edwards said it this way about God's chief purpose in creating anything. It was this. And it is farther to be considered that what God aimed at in the creation of the world as the end which he had ultimately in view was that communication of himself which he intended through all eternity. In other words, what Edwards is saying is God's character is the starting point. And he only created the world in order to communicate his character and to put his character, his love, his justice, his righteousness, his holiness, all of it on display to go public with his character. I mean, I think you definitely see that in passages like, sorry, uh, Psalm 19. I thought it was on the screen. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And what that means is that the creation, every aspect of creation, puts on display God's character. And so it's not just that you look out at the sky and you can see that there's a creator and there's a designer. What a coincidence. It's not like that. God actually purposed it that way. He created the trees in the way that he did, and the mountains and the rivers and all of this, the way that he did in order to teach us about him. And as the ultimate end to put his character on display. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, we're discussing this kind of right understanding of creation and why God has made things because I think this comes into play when we start to talk about the results of the gospel. Because each of the results of the gospel that we're going to discuss this morning is really an illustration that we, we draw from daily life. Let me give you an example. One of the results of the gospel that we're going to talk about this morning is adoption, right? God adopts us into his family. And what I'm saying to you is, I think God wanted to put on display his love and his care for his people and his salvation, saving grace toward his people. And so he created the family and created this dynamic of adoption in order to help us understand what his love is like. So all of these different aspects of physical life here on earth should point us back to God and his love and his care. His character is, is the starting point. And so these illustrations, these results of the gospel are going to draw us back to his love and his care as the starting point this morning. And so as we look at these results of the gospel, we're going to look at them in two areas or two categories, all right? Uh, the first category is the individual results of the gospel. These are benefits that come to you and I individually because of salvation, because of the work that Christ has done. And at the beginning of this series, we talked about a couple of different paradigms to understand the gospel, and the individual results would largely be associated with the paradigm of God, man, Christ response 
You ever presented the gospel that way where you start with God and you go to man and his sin and then you talk about Christ and his coming and then our response to that? So these individual results go with that paradigm. And then we're gonna talk about the cosmic results, big picture of what happens. And those results or that result happens with the creation, fall, redemption, consummation presentation of the gospel, sort of the gospel in the air uh, paradigm, right? So um, that's what we're going to do this morning as we finish up this series on the gospel. And so I want to give you a summary sentence of what we're doing this morning. Here's, here's what, what I'm aiming at. Let's know and rejoice in the individual and the cosmic results of the gospel. We do tend to get focused, I think, on individual results, but there's a much bigger picture of what God is doing. So I'm going to start with these individual results this morning, and I'm going to give you six of these, all right? All of these different illustrations or benefits that come to us from Christ's work on the cross. Now, as I give you these six, these are not the only six. You could expand this out quite a bit further. You could state these results or benefits in different ways. I am sure of that. But as I go through these six, here's what I want you to keep in mind. These are meant by you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, these are meant to be taken by you and appropriated, put to use, right? If you have a new drill in your toolbox, it's not just enough to have the drill there. You want to appropriate it. You want to put it to use and and do projects with it, right? And so what I'm saying is the goal this morning is to know and rejoice to take these results and appropriate them in your life. Use them in daily life and have them shape your your affections, your motivations, your actions. Put them to use. Appropriate them. And one of the ways to do that is to rehearse these benefits. We forget about them. We forget what we have in the gospel. And so I'm saying Write these down and go back to them on a regular basis and remind yourself of what Christ has done and how that has benefited you and the results that have have come to you. And when that happens, I think you'll find joy and, and satisfaction and growth and change in what Christ has done. So the first one of these results or benefits is redemption or rescue. When you're saved born again, you are redeemed, you're rescued from the power of the devil, of sin, and of darkness. I mean, we we talked about this a little bit last week, but you you could very much describe this as a rescue, a liberation from the power of sin and darkness. Colossians 1 talks about this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I've been watching uh, over the last few weeks a World War II documentary um, on Netflix, World War II in Color. And uh, I watch it while I'm walking on the treadmill and uh, I love it, it's, it's very exciting. Um, <laughs> but interspersed throughout this documentary are all of these video images and pictures of people in France or different countries in Europe who have been under Nazi rule for several years and the allies come into the town and the Germans leave and the people are liberated from the rule of of the Germans, from their heavy hand and the people, what are they doing? Well, they're in the streets 
and they're, they're singing, they're waving, they're rejoicing. I mean, you know, some people are running up and hugging and kissing these soldiers who are, who are liberating them. I think that's exactly the image that we should get when we think about salvation. We have been rescued, liberated, redeemed from the power of sin. Now, when you think about salvation, rescue comes through ransom. There is a payment on our behalf to liberate us from the power of darkness. We talked about this last week, but Christ wins the victory through his substitutionary atonement. Through his death on the cross, he defeats the powers of darkness and liberates us from sin. Acts 20 specifically talks about this. Paul is exhorting the elders at Ephesus and he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, look at this, which he obtained, right? He rescued, he redeemed, he bought them with his own blood. Now imagine for a second if you are one of those French villagers who has just been Liberated. You've managed to live through Nazi rule for four years, five years, and the Allies roll into town one morning on their tanks, and you have been liberated. In that moment, everything about your life has changed, and you are rejoicing on that particular day. But then think through to the next morning when you wake up and you're groggy, but you all of a sudden remember this is completely different. And you rehearse what happened yesterday and you go out into your day in light of the fact that you have been liberated and that you have been rescued from this invading army. That's what I'm saying about the work of Christ. Go back to that every day and remind yourself that you have been freed from sin. It no longer has dominion over you. You have been liberated. Wake up every morning with that truth and that reality in mind. And that will change the way you go out into your day, just like it would have for those French villagers in 1944 and 1945. Regularly remind yourself of your rescue. Second, and we're going to go through these fairly quickly because we could spend a lot of time on each one. Forgiveness of sins. This is a result or a benefit of the gospel. You've been redeemed, liberated, but your sins have also been forgiven. To be guilty is one of the greatest problems, if not the greatest problem that human beings face. All of us, our hearts have been wired. We have been created to know that certain actions are right and certain actions are wrong. And that's intuitive to us. Even if we don't all agree that the same actions are right and wrong, we know that there is right and there is wrong and we all act that way, even if we would deny it. But even if a person doesn't acknowledge that he or she has participated in any wrongdoing, objective guilt, being told you are guilty, being declared guilty, is still devastating. If you were to commit a crime and be declared guilty, be charged with that crime and found guilty of that crime, it is a devastating thing. To owe a legal debt to society is awful. But to owe a legal debt to God and to be found guilty before him is the worst thing that can happen to a human being. 
mean, if you carry this idea of legal guilt over into the financial realm, I mean, we all can understand what having an incredibly high financial debt situation would be like. It's crushing to have financial debt and, and see that there's no way that I can pay this off. It's, it's like being caught under a mountain. There's no way out. There's no way that you see that you can get yourself out. And it's the same exact way with our sin debt to God. We're born into that situation. But through the work of Christ, through his death on the cross, we have forgiveness of sins. And what that means is that our moral guilt, our legal guilt before God, the ultimate consequences of our wrongdoing, death, enslavement to sin, eternity, judgment, all of that has been canceled. It has been remitted. It has been pardoned. In a moment, it is gone. And so God's forgiveness of our sins means that our legal guilt has been taken away and we have been released from that legal guilt. Psalm 103 says this, as far as the east is from the west, going out in opposite directions, in the Hebrew mind, this would have been the best way possible to describe an infinite distance, right? East is from west, you just keep going. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Ephesians 1 and verse 7. In him we have redemption. We've talked about that through his blood. That's one image of our salvation, one picture benefit. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God has let our guilt go, not in injustice, not just waving his hand and letting it go, but he's let it go because Christ has paid for our sins on the cross. Third, individual result, justification. Not only have our sins been forgiven, they have been wiped away. We've been pardoned of our sins, right? So we have the negative impact of our sins canceled and remitted. But now, on the flip side, we have been legally declared righteous because of what Christ has done. Now, when, when you hear that word declared, it's really easy to think that God has just sort of made this pronouncement and it's, it's not actually true. That he has announced that we are legally righteous, but we're not actually righteous. And it's easy to think that because we look around at one another and we say, oh yeah, I'm not actually righteous in my life. There is, there is some truth to that. But in the Bible, God speaks the truth. He always declares what is true. And so he declares us righteous in his eyes. So how can this work? And this is one of the great problems that the reformers were working through. How can God declare sinful people, people who obviously still break the law and still sin against him, how can he declare them righteous when they're not? And the reason for this is because we have been united with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we do not rest in our own merits and our own righteousness. We have been joined to Christ. We are in him. We are with him. And so his death, his resurrection, his obedience to God in those things counts for us. They happened to us as well. Listen to the language of with Christ in Ephesians 2. 
Why are we declared righteous? Because we are in Christ. We are with Christ. His work is on our behalf. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All of this happens to you and I. We are declared righteous because we're in Christ. We are united with him. Now, this is one of those truths that we have to constantly remind ourselves of, that we are united with Christ and what has happened to him counts for us and has happened to us. And The Apostle Paul would say that your growth in holiness and your changing to become more and more functionally righteous actually happens because you recognize that you're united with Christ. Let me show you this in Romans chapter 6. For, he's explaining union with Christ here, right? What happens to Christ happens to me. For, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So we died with Christ in his death. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, here's the application point. Here's what all of this uniting with Christ, his death for me, his resurrection for me, here's what this means for you and I. So, you also must consider or reckon, believe yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so it's, it's that liberation illustration, again, reminding yourself that this is true. Sin doesn't have dominion over me. Why? Because Christ died for sin and I died to sin with him. And actually, I can live a new life now. I can act and believe and walk differently. Why? Because I've been raised with him to new life. And now I have the spirit working inside of me. So I don't have to give in to these temptations. In fact, I've been empowered to not give in to them because of what Christ has done for me. And so this ethical and moral exhortation here comes on the back of our union with Christ. Rehearse that truth every day and it will serve you well. Fourth, reconciliation. This may be one of the most beautiful images, I think, of, our, of the results of our salvation. Reconciliation. I'm not going to say a lot about this. I'm going to let J.I. Packer describe what this looks like. To reconcile means to bring together again persons who had previously fallen out. To replace alienation, hostility, and opposition by a new relationship of favor, goodwill, and peace. And so to transform the attitude of the persons reconciled towards each other and to set their subsequent mutual dealings on a wholly new footing. We have been reconciled to God, 
and not because we recognized we were in the wrong and went after him. Because he went after us. Because he initiated. Because he, the one who had been wronged, pursued the ones who had rebelled against him. Colossians 1. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You see that description of hostile, antagonistic toward God. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Fifth, adoption. I mean, just look at the the multifaceted results of the gospel that we've gone through. All of these different images drawn from daily life coming together and presenting this glorious picture of what Christ has done and the results of that for us. Adoption. I think in the last few years, one of the most emotional moments that I personally have had was when in the fall of 2019, uh, we went down to South Carolina and went to the official uh, courtroom adoption of my nephew for my sister-in-law and her husband. Um, her husband was adopted as a baby, and they adopted uh, this little child. And I, I just, I mean, I was blubbering. Like I could not make it at all. As soon as they started, it, it, was, it was over, I, you know. And we were all sitting there just crying and crying and crying. And it's, a, it's an unbelievable picture of the gospel to be adopted is to be officially, objectively welcomed into a new family. And when you are welcomed into that new family, you have all the rights and all the privileges, the new relationships of that new family. And in an instant, Josiah, their nephew, went from not having a mom and dad that he had a relationship with and being their foster child now to being officially their son. Everything changed in that moment. And he goes home and he has his bedroom and no one is going to take that away from him. All of that happens because now he's part of a new family. And for you and I, because of our union with Christ, because we are in him, God's son, now we become sons and daughters We are a part of his family, and our situation could not have changed more dramatically, right? Everything is different. Romans 8 talks about this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Everything has changed relationally with God. Sixth, eternal life. This is probably the most well-known benefit or result of the gospel. We talk about this. We have eternal life. But I would venture to guess that this may be the most misunderstood, wrongly understood benefit or result of the gospel. 
When we think of having eternal life, we often think of simply existing forever, going on in our lives forever. Yeah, and it'll be in heaven and all of that, but we just think of of the duration of life being what we have been given in Christ. But when the scriptures, particularly the Gospel of John, talk about eternal life, they're not just saying and not mainly saying the duration of your life is going to continue. They're not talking about living forever, although that is true. You will exist forever. Reality will exist forever in one of two places. But think back to the Garden of Eden. What happened in the Garden of Eden as soon as Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, there was immediate death. Not physical death, but there was immediate separation from God. There was immediate enmity with God relationally, and there was exile from his presence. They could no longer be in God's presence. They were kicked out of the garden, exiled because of their sin. And so to be given, when that, that judgment of death was given to them in that moment, to be given life then means that they are brought back into fellowship with God. They are returned from exile. And now they can experience that for which they were originally made. Fellowship, life, satisfaction in God. John 17, 3, I think, defines this for us. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so to be given eternal life, yes, it means to live forever, of course, But to be given eternal life is to be brought back into fellowship with God and to be able to exist forever, for all eternity, doing that thing for which we were designed. To know him, to love him, to delight in him, and to worship him. To find full satisfaction and enjoyment in the presence of God. That is eternal life. And that's what we've been given as a result of the gospel. So, you got six of these here, six benefits, and I know there are more, but these are some of the most prominent individual benefits of the gospel. Now, what's interesting here is as we think about individual benefits and then transition over to cosmic benefits, you and I, as image bearers of God, we are the high point of his creation. And so, This redemption, the benefits that come to us, don't stay with us individually. God says, actually, as you and I receive these benefits, they overflow out into the entire cosmos, into the entire creation. And the creation's redemption actually rests on ours. But because of our redemption, we can be confident that it will happen and that God will ultimately set all things right. And I'll show you what I mean here when we talk about the cosmic results of the gospel. Now, if you're not already there, I want you to turn to Romans 8. This is where we're going to be for the rest of our time together. Romans 8. We just read a passage from this chapter just a minute ago about adoption. And if you look in verse 17, I want you to notice the end of that that section that we read talks about suffering. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so you'll notice that we're suffering with Christ in this present life. 
We'll talk about what that means in just a second. But the the ultimate end of our salvation is that we would be fully and finally redeemed. Our bodies as well would be glorified. Sin would be permanently gone from, from our hearts and from our bodies. And so we would be glorified. Now look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so the sufferings that he's talking about here are all the bad things, the uncomfortable things that happen in this life. Everything. It's sin. It's the brokenness. The brokenness of our bodies, of our world, the system. It's the trials that we encounter, the difficulties, the health problems, the financial problems. All of the sufferings of this present life are what he's talking about. All of these things happen because of the presence of sin in the world. But what's amazing about Paul's perspective here, and we could really use a dose of this right now. What's amazing about his perspective is that none of those sufferings can hold a candle to what is to be expected and banked on in the future. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What God has prepared for us will so outweigh the present sufferings that it will blow our minds. And now, because of that waiting and anticipating the glorification of our bodies, the glory that will be revealed to us, now he's going to connect our redemption, our glorification, to setting all things right. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And so one translator said the creation is on tiptoes. It's like a a little kid up to the counter on tiptoes trying to peer over. That's what creation is doing. And creation is on tiptoes waiting with eager anticipation for our full and final redemption. Because the redemption of the creation, the setting free from sin and corruption of the creation is bound up with our redemption. Then in these next few verses, Paul explains this full picture of the, of the world, of the creation, and what has happened and what will happen. There's a past, a present, and a future situation here. Look at verse 20. This is the past. For the creation was, right in the past, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so in Eden, the creation was put under the curse of sin. There were corrupting results that happened because of our sin, but they happened to creation. And God did that in hope that one day everything would be set right. Now the future of what's coming to the creation. In hope, verse 20, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so that's the expectation in the future. But I want you to notice the present, what's happening right now. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The current situation of the creation is that it's groaning like a woman in childbirth. It's hard. 
But what's amazing about a woman who is in labor and is experiencing unbelievable cramps and contractions is that that pain itself points forward to a glorious time when a new child will come into the world. There is a good thing coming, and the pain itself indicates that a good thing is coming down the line. And so it works that way with creation as well as with us. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so all of these sufferings that are happening right now, for you and I, all the difficulties, all the junk that is going on, all of that should be like labor pains that are pointing toward a good thing that's coming in the future. It's hard right now, but it points forward to something that is going to be glorious in the future. And that is true of us, and because that is true of us, it's true of creation. We wait for the redemption of our bodies which will coincide with the redemption of the entire creation. Now, how can we be so confident that this will happen? How can we be so confident that everything is going to be set right one day? The creation's renewal is tied to ours, and our renewal, our, the redemption of our bodies, is part of this unbreakable chain of working, of salvation that God has brought to us. Look down to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so there's this promise that even the most difficult things we encounter in this life are actually working for our good in the future. And they're working in... in, the future or for our good in the future because God has called us according to his purpose. And so God is using, verse 18, the sufferings of the present time for our good. But those sufferings will only be for our good for those who are called according to his purpose. And this is where God's working and his unbreakable chain of salvation comes into play. This, verses 29 and 30, this is why you and I can bank on God setting things right. We know things are going to be right. We know there's labor pains right now, and it is terrible in a lot of ways. But we know that those labor pains look forward to a good, glorious thing that is coming down the line. And we know that, and we can bank on that because it is not dependent on us. It is dependent on him. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, which is a beautiful image. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And then the end of the chain, all the way back to verse 18, verse 17, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, let me walk you through this chain here and see why this is so foundational and so encouraging to us. Those whom he foreknew, the beginning of this chain, is the foreknowledge of God. Now, to foreknow someone 
is to set your affection on that person. It's to know them intimately. Now, let me be clear. This word is not describing God simply looking into the future and seeing who would have faith and then deciding to save them or to love them. In Scripture, this word, to know, speaks of a very intimate and a very close relationship. Adam knew his wife Eve. It's a close, choosing, covenantal relationship. And so when God foreknows someone, he sets his personal affection on that person before he or she is ever born. And then as he sets his affection on that person, look at this chain, he predestines them to be conformed to the image of his son. He says, I love this person. I have set my affection on this person. And so I, in my grace, am going to work to make this person like my son. I'm going to shape them into the image of Christ. And then he predestines them, verse 30, and then he calls them. He actually extends the call of salvation to them and calls them to himself by his spirit. And then the rest of verse 30, those whom he called, he also justified. Every single person whom he foreknows, he predestines, and those whom he predestines, he calls. And those whom he calls to himself by his spirit, he justifies. He declares them righteous. They respond in faith, and he declares them righteous. And all those whom he declares righteous, what ultimately happens? They are glorified. He sees the chain all the way through. Now, it matters immensely here that the foundation of this chain, the first link in this chain, is not a link that is tied to you or to me. It matters immensely, actually, that none of the links in this chain are really tied to you and to me. But this chain begins and is rooted in God's love and affection for his children, for his people. And if this chain depended on you or on me, it would break. But it depends on the love of God from eternity past. And so this chain and the ultimate results of it are based in God's character. It is as sure that if you are in Christ, you will be glorified as that God exists, is what this is saying. It is absolutely sure. And if your glorification is sure, my glorification is sure, based on the love and the work of Christ, then we can have confidence that everything is going to be set right. Look at verse 23. Go back up. Verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I want you to notice that last line of verse 25. We wait for it with patience patience. Man, this is our posture right now. In the sufferings of the present time, all the difficulties, all the junk that is happening, all the craziness, all the problems for all of us in individual lives, corporately, as a country, all of this, 
the sufferings, in the midst of this, we have a posture of patience. Doesn't mean we're not involved, doesn't mean we're not concerned, but we are able to wait with patience. Why? Because we have a hope that says, God started this chain, God will see it through, I will be glorified, and everything will be set right. All of the creation will be freed from sin, freed from death. All of it will be set right. And so we're able to wait with patience because of everything we've talked about this morning. All the the results, all the benefits of the gospel give us confidence that God is working and that we will be glorified and creation will be set right. God has worked salvation in us because of his love. And I love how Romans 8 ends, and we won't read the whole section, but I mean, you know this passage that Romans 8 ends talking about the love of God for his people. What can separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? None of those sufferings can separate us from God's love. It's the foundation, and it's what will carry us all the way through. So what's our task now? What's your task and my task this week? Live in light of the hope that we have with patience and with confidence because God has begun a work and he will see it through. He'll bring the chain to completion and you will be glorified and one day we'll all be together on the new earth rejoicing in the results of what the Lord has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture that we have received this morning of your working, the results of the gospel. Encourage us Build hope into us. Help us to rejoice in what you have done. And we thank you for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.